Hello friends, I'm here. I'm here to talk about the things that have changed that we're recording this episode. One, we have the website, it is real, you can go to abnormalmapping.com slash SOS and listen to this podcast. We're also on iTunes, you're probably listening to this on iTunes, you can go search there. I'm going to try to have Google Play up by the time this episode goes live, if it's not, I'm getting, I'm working on it. Also, if you would like to support us, go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping, throw us a dollar or two, uh, maybe be able to choose what TV shows we talk about in any given episode, or maybe check out, you know, uh, if you if you uh, donate enough, you could possibly be on an episode talking about your favorite science fiction book. Uh, we're open to whatever, so please support us if you like this, check out our other shows, and enjoy this episode. Thanks. Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remember that old saying, power corrupts. Second Officer Slog. I am your host, Em. With me is my number one, Jackson. Hello, Star Trek. That's what we're here to talk about, Star Trek. This, uh, once again, is an episode that's going to release before we actually put out the podcast. Uh, or, not release, uh, be recorded, because the podcast doesn't exist yet. But we have a theme, we have uh, podcast art, we're like ready to go. So I'm very we excited. Are. What have you been doing in terms of things that relate to Star Trek in the last month, Jackson? Well, I've read the book and I've watched the two episodes. Oh, you got to live Star Trek in your heart every day. Uh, I will. I need to speed up on watching Enterprise and getting to Voyager. Uh, just because we're going to be like watching those things for the podcast. So it's time. It's time to hurry up. Yeah. I'm jealous that you live in a world in which there's Star Trek you haven't seen. I guess we, I, I don't we both know if will I, soon. I don't know if I've seen every episode of the original series and neither of us have touched the animated series yet. So That's true. That is true. I guess at some point we'll watch at least a couple, right? At some point we will be experts in the animated series. I, I don't think that's guaranteed. I think that that's a good goal for us. If we're already going down this rabbit hole, why not follow it all the way down? I like the world when we become experts in the books before the animated series. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're here to do. We're here to become experts in books. We are here today to talk about Avatar Book 2 uh by sd perry it is the sequel to the book we read last month or you know they're both par two parts of a single whole because man that last book sure didn't end with any resolution and this book doesn't begin with anything other than hey guess what we're right back where we started um or where we left off uh but we're talking about two episodes first so this month we are talking about masks which is tng season 7 episode 17 and then, Jackson, you chose Duet, which is DS9 Season 1, Episode 19. Which would you like to talk about first? I'll let you pick. I would like to talk about Masks first. Masks, uh, considered by many people to be the worst episode of The Next Generation. That's just factually incorrect. That's just not true. Like, you can have your opinion, but have you watched Season 1 recently? Uh, I mean, no. I mean, I guess I did, like, two years ago. 
but it's a yeah it's a bad it's a bad show yeah like when tng is bad it's bad in such different ways and masks is bad sometimes but it's the best kind of bad it is the only the kind of show you would only get from a very late part of like this show's been going for seven seasons. Let's just fucking throw out some weirdness and let one of our actors just play a bunch of weird characters in it. Um, if you don't know, uh, briefly, Masks is the Enterprise comes across a weird uh, comet, and when they start excavating it, it reveals that inside of the icy exterior is uh, like an art alien archive, and it starts uh, sending all of its information to the ship, which causes the ship to be overtaken by alien code, which, uh, starts converting the Enterprise into what basically looks like, uh, middle American, like, temples and shit, and at the same time, it turns Data into a repository of all the people who live there, and Data becomes, uh, questionably evil? Well, he has a bunch of personalities, and he has, like, a little, uh, placard on his chest to let you know that he has changed personalities, uh, if you couldn't tell from Brent Spiner's sneering or cowering or any of the other things that he does as he saunters through this episode, uh... This is the episode where there's a bunch of symbolism and there's a bunch of masks, obviously. But it opens with maybe the most TNG-ass thing possible, which is the head counselor of the flagship of Starfleet teaching a bunch of children how to sculpt things out of clay. Teaching a bunch of children how to sculpt things out of clay. And Data. And Data, because Data's basically a child. Like, come on, that's yeah. not even in question at this point. Sure, but it makes the logistics of what is happening in that room just even stranger. Yeah, we get my favorite Season 7 uh, side character, who is Eric, who is just a young black kid who is the son of like a lady who's randomly in a couple episodes and Eric's in a couple episodes. And I don't know why he's there other than he's great, uh, but I love that he's, at the beginning of this episode, being the cool learning person when Data is the exasperating learning person, because Data's idea of creativity is to accurately replicate a pad and then a uh, treble clef when Counselor Troy is like, oh. make something that represents music. The, the treble clef bit was so good because she goes like, made something that represents music and he thinks for a second and goes like, ah, oh. and then there's one, an amazing shot of his hands, which oh, is yeah. just they do the, sped they up. They do the speed up data thing. Yeah, this is always uh, great. Which is especially hilarious because it's not just him sped up, it's him interacting with clay sped up. So it's clearly just double speed clay. Yep. Um, and then he, like, makes a note, and uh, Troy makes a face like, yeah, fucking of course. Like, To be the- fair, <laughs> if Brent Spiner made that treble clef, like, actually on camera, it is a really nicely made treble clef. I, I don't think... They, like, they cut away before they reveal what it is. Do they? I don't think they do. Do they not? Hmm. I mean, there's someone else's hands. Yeah, no, that's probably true. Uh, I don't think Brett Spiner had the time to sit for half an hour and make the, the treble clef. I don't know. I know that he was really into the acting in this episode. There are some quotes on Memory Alpha that's like, I didn't think I had the time to truly prepare to play all these different people. <laughs> uh, I mean, he doesn't because all he plays is I'm an old man or I'm like lore, but like uh, less murdery and more just vaguely sinister. And then when he has to finally play, like, the evil sun goddess that they've been pointing to the entire time, his whole thing is to just be very rigid and shout. He's just in his, like, theater projection voice. Yeah, it's pretty good. And when he's in his uh, law crossed with Q uh, imitation, playing, the, like, the main character uh, of like, the, the, the one they come back to the most, 
it, it's surreal. It's weird. I don't like it because Dale is already surreal by this point because he's old. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I uh, watching them all kind of like in a row. I didn't. I don't really know, like season seven. Brent Spiner doesn't actually read as old to me. It's like generations Brent Spiner. That I'm like, oh, this guy is clearly too old to be Data. Even uh, though that's like three months later. Yeah, I know. It's it's something about the film quality that like changes it because like the thing like at some point, especially for the Blu-ray versions or like the Netflix versions that are based on the Blu-rays, you kind of have to get over things like you can see the seams on Worf's forehead in every episode. Uh, yeah. And so like stuff like Brent Spiner visibly aging just kind of get glossed over in the this is on Blu-ray now, so there's just some things you have to excuse. Well, this is my first time watching TNG episodes on Blu-rays. Oh yes, um, right. Uh, when I watched them, the Netflix version was just the the same as DS Nine, like the DVD versions. Yeah, no, ours. Uh, when we were when I was watching it with my partner Destiny, we it changed over somewhere around like season two or three. And man, mm. you want to talk about a jarring shift? Phew. Yeah, yeah, no, because it's it's a real it's a real shift. But masks itself is so it's almost it's almost really good. There's moments. There's like three different episodes. It could be. <laughs> I would like to point out that some of the things that happen in this episode. Um, one, uh, uh, Beverly and uh, Deanna have this moment where they're just kind of like gossiping about Worf's like kung fu class. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, like, when they walk in, one of the artifacts is there because it's right as the artifacts are starting to appear. And Beverly just assumes that Will would come into Deanna's apartment uninvited and drop off like a statuary. <laughs> And, and and then Troy's response is not oh no he'd never do that it was like no this doesn't look like he would make it yeah no, no it's that's not his taste is what she says explicitly um, which I mean she's right but also oh my god but then when Beverly's like oh maybe it was a secret admirer which means someone unknown went into her quarters without her permission she's like oh huh that's nice um, there are times when even in its seventh season even in 1993 uh, it's Star Trek is the most painfully 80s show ever created. Yep. Um, one of the other events in this is they're like, oh, we need to blow up the comet. So they're prepping a manual detonation of a photon torpedo because the weapon systems are offline. So they're like going to just teleport it over or whatever. And as they're examining the photon torpedo, the power cuts out. And as they open the panel, the panel of the photon torpedo is full of snakes. Uh, yep. which is one of the goofiest possible things that could happen. They're probably the crew members, because one of the things that I find really interesting about this show is that basically it's like Worf, Geordi, Picard, Riker, and Deanna for most of it, and everyone else has disappeared. The ship is empty for the second half, and yeah. they never actually mention, oh, the crew members have been turned into this and we need to turn them back. Um, but but it's like everything else is being turned, so I assume they're turning the crew members into all the like plants and stuff that start existing all over. Yeah, that's what I assumed, but they never, like, mention it explicitly. Like, there's a line about our DNA, and they d go out of their way to, like, s not say, hey, these are all people. Uh, presumably because that would take too much time, or that got rewritten out. I know the episode had a bunch of rewrites. Um, uh, well, it is also the most Star Trek thing to just have it be a fact that most of the people on the ship were turned into plants or animals, and it was undone, and no one mentions it or has to go through therapy forever, because that's what happens to a Starfleet officer all the time. <laughs> there is one line that suggests the contrary, which is like, right before they activate the final trans uh, 
the transformation sequence to make the 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 deck into the temple mm. uh there's like this deck has been cleared of personnel we can go so maybe the, the even weirder thing is that they've had to like s- there's been a bunch of other people off screen moving this ship full of just civilians because that's what the enterprise d is as it is turned into plants and that's just the day-to-day <laughs> yep um and then uh, the last thing I wanted to point out is maybe one of the dumbest lines in all of Next Generation. Which So everything's like being turned into artifacts and uh, Riker comes into Picard's ready room and he's like, oh, I see you have more of these uh, rocks. and or He's like, oh, these rocks. And Picard's basically like holding up these artifacts. He's like, Will, this is a lost culture. You don't understand. These things are priceless because Picard's a giant nerd. And... Uh, they're pointing out all the like markings on it. Cause this whole thing's about like uh, the symbolism of this culture or whatever. Uh, and uh, Riker's like, Oh, well data's got data's been translating them as far as we can get them. Uh, it seems like they're forming a bound, like everything they're doing is like representative of boundaries. And this one here means death. And then Picard pauses in wonder and then flatly says to will the ultimate boundary, death, <laughs> which is maybe the dumbest line that picard has ever said he delivers it so earnestly i love it so much i was just crying laughing at this scene it was stunning masks is a is a hilarious episode more than it is like a bad episode to me i like the show when it's really goofy like i like beverly crusher fuck ghost at some point we'll do that episode yes Uh, (laughs) yes The thing I wanted to say about Mask is that there's the episode it could be that's like actually really cool is the idea of the ship like slowly being taken over. Um, Like there's a couple of shots where it's just a normal shot of a set, but the uh, the Elkars is turned into like the the, just the the sign for death. and there's like something super eerie about that, and the, like the way the ship becomes empty is eerie. And uh, if they had actually stuck with that, and you know, not had all the stuff about data and all these millions of people, and you know, just the episode is stuffed with ridiculous, hilarious nonsense. But I, there are I, there are moments like with Geordi and engineering and the, the the ship like turning into things um, against them that really work, and uh, I. I don't, I don't, I don't think I've seen uh, another Star Trek episode with that idea. Maybe there's some. Mm-hmm. Like they very rarely go that kind of horror route. Yeah. Ah, that that was it. That was my take. All right. Um, we didn't mention at the beginning, and that's my fault because I'm the one who has the Wikipedia up. Uh, this episode was written by uh, Joe Minoski and directed by Robert O. Weimer. Uh, we always want to do those for these episodes, so that's on yes. me. My apologies. Yes. Um, but let's move on to the actual most hilarious episode of star trek we're talking about this week <laughs> what are you talking is, about it's it's the best episode of star trek which is duet uh uh teleplay was by peter allen fields the story is by lisa rich and gene kerrigan fossey and it was directed by james l conway this is the episode in which there is a sick cardassian on a freighter and then they bring it on bring him on board for treatment and it turns out that he has a disease that could only have been contracted if he was working at a forced labor camp during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Uh, Kira goes to interview him, and there's some question as to his identity, and then it's discovered that he might be the warden of that forced prison camp, and so she's basically holding like a Nazi war criminal, and it's her uh, talking to him about his motives and everything as they d- 
the basically the Federation is left uh, whether or not they're going to return this guy to the Cardassians or give him to the Bajorans, because in theory, the Federation is supposed to be like the neutral mediator of these things. Um, and we'll talk about that. Uh, this is maybe the, like, defining, this is, like, I call, I told Jackson the other day, this is the measure of a man of DS9, is, like, where the themes that would go on to define this show just kind of show up fully formed. Uh, this is a great episode. Yes. It is, um, like, that. this stuff is obviously there in the first season uh, throughout, with Cisco like, mediating between the Cardassians and the, and the Bajorans, uh, but this is, like, we are bringing up everything about Kira's past, everything about uh, what it is like to conduct just ridiculous diplomacy between two sides who hate each other. Um, And also, we're filling it with just the most ludicrous monologues that have ever been delivered by a character in Star Trek. Um, One of the things that I find really interesting, and I guess the... No, that would have already happened. Um, The... uh... The Four Lights episodes. Those have already yes. happened, right? Yeah. Well, um, no, because um, Chain of Command happens, and then the yes. next episode of Star Trek that airs oh, right, right, right. is Emissary. So one of the things I actually really like is that for, like, when they have a big, showy Cardassian moment, they always get, like, these really good, like, character and stage actors to just deliver incredibly theatrical monologues. And it, it makes the Cardassians kind of like this very, like, rational, like, well-spoken species that g- delivers really impassioned speeches about kind of the most heinous shit imaginable. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons I really like the Cardassians, because so much of their stuff is built on a foundation that you could kind of understand as long as you gave up all pretense of caring about human, like, not human beings, but people as living beings. Um, and it, in these trying times, uh, I feel like it, some of the stuff in DS9 is as relevant as it has ever been. Uh Yes. Uh, but also, like, when Star Trek's just a weird bottle show that is, like, straight up, let's just do a play, those are always some of the best episodes of Star Trek. Accurate. Um, uh, I, this uh, episode was apparently inspired by a stage play called The Man in the Glass Booth um, from Robert Shaw that is actually about, like, a uh, Jewish man accused of being a Nazi war criminal and is about, like, the way that Israelis went after... Like Nazis who went into hiding and changed their name and stuff in the mm-hmm. aftermath of World War II. Um, and it's weird because, like, I, I know neither of us are really super informed enough to speak on this stuff, but Star Trek's general metaphors for real life stuff uh, can often be a little fuzzy and a little problematic. Like, uh, eventually we'll get some Worf episodes where we get to talk about Worf as, like, a black experience character. And that stuff, that stuff can be, like, really tricky and icky. Um, and the stuff in which Bajor is an analog for, like, uh, Jewish Holocaust survivors dealing with the Nazis who are still around is really weird, especially when you think of, in this instance, like, the Federation is America, but they get to decide whether or not you're going to extradite the war criminal or not, which mm-hmm. is maybe, I feel like, a really morally nebulous place to put the Federation because uh, I feel like, ideally, the Federation would not just turn over the Cardassian no matter what, like, if Bajor had a claim to this. Uh, because, they're like, Bajor is like a protectorate of the Federation, isn't it? It's a protectorate? They haven't joined. Cause, like, no, 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 they haven't joined, there. of course, but because uh, they don't, like, ever join, really. We, we'll see. We're reading oh, the Oh, sure. <laughs> but, like, up through where we are, like, even post, like, even in the lead up to Nemesis, Bajor is not a part of the Federation yet. 
Yeah, no, the the idea of... Like, DS9 is there in order to hopefully have that happen one day. Yeah, but, um, like, like, at, the, at the same time, like, the Cardassian Empire is, like, a vague... Like, they're they're in, like, a ceasefire, like, like uneasy armistice right now. Yes. So the idea that the Federation would be put in a tight spot about this seems really weird to me when they could just say no. Like, I don't think... What's the Cardassians going to do? Yeah, like, it is a strange... Um, like they're they're really concerned about what happens if the Cardassians get angry, but like they could start a war and then they'd lose immediately. Like the uh, the Federation holds all the diplomatic power here. Yeah. Um, but like ignoring that as an inconsistency, um, I th- I think the episode is incredibly good at like portraying that uh, dilemma because I like the fact that in terms of how DS Nine approaches the morality of this stuff, um, Duet is a fascinating episode in that in a lot of ways, things show up fully formed as to how they would be later, but in other ways, it is the complete antithesis of, like, the conclusions the show draws. Oh, sure. Um, we're talking about, because I, I didn't cover it in my, big, in my opening summary, is the thing with this guy who's shown up is that all of their records indicate that he is a guy who is just, like, a file clerk in um, on this forced labor camp, and then it turns out that, oh no, like, all those records are falsified, he's actually, like, the goal who was in charge of everything, and then it turns out, no, that is just, like, this man's guilt, he got himself surgically altered to look like the goal who was in charge of this forced labor camp, because he was that file clerk, and the atrocities committed by the Cardassians uh, have basically plagued him ever since, and he is not able to function as a Cardassian being. Yep. Um, but that leads to a lot of, like, conversation about is like specifically the thing this episode is about is is Kira Norris's anger towards this man as like the one she can get her hands on is culpable for the crimes against her people like does her sense of retribution change depending on how like high up in the command he was like does a file clerk need to be persecuted uh and like that's the question that she asks and I guess the one that like we all like eventually it's like an unanswered question for everyone but her because she at the end is like oh like it's not enough this guy already felt guilt like we're not here to punish people who felt bad for being decent people um well, yeah um but like i think the the part that we're missing uh and i think the thing that's most interesting about how it relates to later ds9 is what the, so the guy's plan the cardassian's plan um is to get captured and be identified as this uh, goal yeah. and be handed over to Bajor and like serve as this symbol um, uh, to to because like the Cardassians don't admit to having these labor camps they don't admit to doing these crimes to to uh, like b- even though everyone knows um, so his goal is to like surface the uh, Cardassian like war crimes in order for Cardassia to acknowledge them and actually grow as a society. Yeah. Um, and in like, th- it's just like, it's uh, not the same thing, but it's incredibly similar to, um, uh, in the pale moonlight, which is a later episode of DS9, which I assume you've seen if you're re- re- uh, listening to this, uh, which has, um, like a, a similar ending from the other side where, where, the like Cisco does something fucking horrible because it would uh, cause something good in like a greater sense to occur. Like, I feel like in, if this show was later in DS9, this would 100% ended with Kira like not telling anyone and having him go back to Bajor uh, as like, this is what we have to do. <laughs> 
to force history to do the right thing. And I think the fact that the show shifts those moral positions between, like, over six years is, uh, like, really fascinating. And a show about this stuff wouldn't have... Like, TNG couldn't go anywhere near these ideas. And if it had come later, it would do it on all the fucking wrong ways. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's it, it's why I think DS9 is such a singular thing. Um, my response to that is I actually think Kira would be even less likely by season six or whenever that happens to do those things. The thing that's important there is Cisco goes from being like I'm going to ca- rationally measure both sides to this is the choice I'm going to make and I will live with it. Like the compromise in morality doesn't happen to the Bajorans; it happens to the Federation. Well, yeah. But like the experience of Bajor and Kira as like maybe their main like their main representative on the show is like one of like a a broader sense of self in like the universe as geopolitics like as everyone else is sullied by the geopolitics of that quadrant and that wormhole like their uh, like righteousness becomes validated uh, mm-hmm. in a way and I think I think like Kira's mercy would be even more like a th- path she would have taken. Oh no, I I I think season six Kira is such a different person that this like this story wouldn't have happened then. I oh, meant sure. more that like the question like the question being asked in season one, applying the standards of like how the show views these conflicts and the morality of them, like the the standards that like eventually goes to, uh the the show would answer in many different ways across the, its running time. I yep. think that's really interesting. Um and then uh, just a couple notes, because I actually took notes. Or actually, one note here. Um, well, I guess it's two. But this open this episode opens with Kira making, like, the most passive-aggressive remark at Dax. Where yeah. Dax is talking about something, and Kira goes, which you are you talking about when you talk about, like, a memory? Which is, like, the rudest thing you could ask a trill. Yeah. Like, there's ways to ask that question that aren't... Like, it's, it's the most, we don't really know the ethics of how, like, we've, we've, uh, made this trail, but haven't really nailed down how we're gonna deal with that, and we had this line that sounded good. Yeah, but it ends up just coming off as, like, a weird racial microaggression. Yep. Uh, which is just weird in the context of that's kind of like your jokey cold open. Because one of the things about this episode is it doesn't really have a B-plot at all. It's just straightforward, here's the problem, we're just gonna go through it. Um. Which yeah, is, un- is like Star Trek kind of thrives on its dumb B plots, and uh, that this episode is like all serious all the time is really uh, interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. the- there's no there's no subplot of like Nog and uh, Miles trying to buy a, a new desk. Yeah, it's like they literally had to like construct a like dumb scene of uh, O'Brien trying to fix a computer to get him into the episode because otherwise he would not appear. Yep, and then there's like a scene of. Uh, survivors from the labor camp, um, which is like a very direct analog to uh, Holocaust survivors, but it, the, the scene is there in order to give Quark a joke. Yeah, <laughs> it's strange. But, um, it's, but yeah. one of the things that I thought was interesting contrasting these two shows is there's a scene later on where uh, Dax goes to basically console Kira and talk about talk through this problem situation. And the way that they're written as like the two women on this show is so diametrically opposed to like that scene with Beverly and Deanna yes. in TNG. And these like those episodes and stuff aren't like that ep- the TNG stuff came out after this, right? Like that's how yeah, that lines no, up. Masks is later because yeah. season six and but season like, one. The yeah. amount DS Nine immediately became a show that has like well realized women who can have conversations about things like war crimes and uh, 
like terrorism and freedom fighting and how you deal with the fallout of your culture versus like even at when they finally gave Deanna and Beverly some things to do when they share scenes together. It's usually about like, here's the women's gossip stuff uh, is really striking. Well, like in, uh, in TNG, it takes till after DS9 is airing for Troy to get some clothes. Yep. (laughs) And meanwhile, it takes until Gene Roddenberry fucking dies for (laughs) someone to be like, no, 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 you can wear pants. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Is he dead? Is he dead? Fucking put on a uniform. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know. It's 1992. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe outside the scope. We'll have that conversation someday about the weird fucking sexism and old Trek and Roddenberry's bullshit. Someday. Yeah. But, uh, someday. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, Duet ends up being such a good episode. Like I watched that, and I hadn't seen DS Nine in probably outside of the uh, pilot, and maybe like three or four, three years or four years. And I was like, man, DS Nine is so good. It's such a great show. It really is. Also, I was watching it like, what if I just watched all of DS Nine again? And I don't, I can't, I won't. But what if? Also, uh, one of uh, a thing. This little episode will come out months after the fact, but there was an article going around today where they were talking about the failure of the TNG Blu-rays, or mostly that there was no way that those were going to recoup their cost, and there was no attempt being made to do the same thing to DS Nine. In part because DS Nine is a show that has way more CG effects that would be impossible to like spruce up the way the TNG ones are, but. Mm-hmm. Looking at DS9 as a show, so much of that show is like, the Cardassian station is full of weird textures and alien stuff, and I think that show would be the ugliest show on Earth if it was in HD. I agree, but also, like, I would love to see it. I want to see, like, exactly the fake-ass, kind of plasticky-looking, massive cog door. Yep. <laughs> The, the, that I can't not think of Torchwood every time I see it, because they also have a fucking cog door. No, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're free. You're free. Yeah, no, I never watched uh, that show. Uh, and, and, yeah, no, it's just a... It's it's a good station. It's, and I, it would look bad in HD, I'm sure, but it's it's uh, it's really interesting. There's, there's also a lot of shots that, in terms of DS9's aesthetic, uh, like, lots of shots of... Um, screens in a way that TNG doesn't do. Even though they obviously there's a lot of Star Trek that is talking to screens. There's lots of like, here's someone on a screen, and then we're going to pan over to the real person walking past them. Like, it's all uh, stuff that they did lots of in like the pilot of the wire. Um, mm. That kind of like maybe that's just in this episode, but I noticed it a lot. Yeah, there, I, I was also thinking because so much. Um... Like, so much of the technology of the TNG aesthetic early on was that the screens aren't, like, actual screens that work in any way. They're just, like, overlays over, like, a backlight. So you have, like, a light table and you just put, like, a plastic sheet that has the L-Cars interface on it and people just touch it and then you put in everything on Foley. Like, there's no there's no animation that can be done because, like, LCDs didn't exist. Um and by DS9, you get to the point where they are compositing shots, like, more freely. Where it's like, oh, like, this screen is just going to be a TV screen that's displaying something. We can shoot that. We know how to do that. We have the technology. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it ends up, like, DS9 ends up feeling, like, radically more modern because of that. Like, even though Masks came out later, like, if you asked me, I'd be like, oh, that show is from, like, five years before. This is what Star mm-hmm. Trek became as it grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the way Cisco looks at... Um 
his little tiny diplomacy iPad. Yeah. Uh, like there's just there's just like a physicality to the way that uh, things are communicated, even in like TNG, someone stands on the bridge, they talk to someone else and standing on another bridge, and even though it's via a screen, it's all very like that that you understand what's happening there. Um whereas uh DS9 is very specific about the the devices that are being used to actually link these galactic civilizations in their uh, dumb petty diplomacy it's pretty good uh the other note along this line is actually about masks that i wanted to note which is the in masks there is uh, a shot where data's like sitting on uh in main engineering and in in, uh, is the where he's sitting on the warp core He's sitting on the warp core, but no, it's the the bit where he then goes to lie down on the table, and there's a handheld shot where he's walking, and it follows him, and it's the least Star Trek thing I've ever seen. Like, I don't, I don't few... remember that, but yeah, no hand. Uh, Star oh! Trek is in general the least handheld show. There's multiple handheld shots in masks, and it's so strange. It's weird, and I notice them every time because, like I say, Star Trek is not a handheld show. Yep. Uh, I always thought, like, I generally just always thought that was a weird, like, him, the one of the things I always remembered about that episode is that scene of Data just sitting on the warp core, like, that's a thing people do. Yep. Because it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like standing on a nuclear reactor. Yeah, you can do it, but it's so upsetting. Why would you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's it for these episodes, right? Yeah, that, that's our takes on the episodes. All right, so let's go ahead and announce our episodes for next month in case you uh, wanted to hear about the episodes but not about the books. Next month, we are doing uh, Inquisition, which is DS9 uh, Season 6, Episode 18. It is the introduction of Section 31, which will become... The reasons for that will become apparent if you listen to the end of this episode uh, where we talk about our next book choice. Um, and then the other uh, episode we'll be talking about is the original series, epi- uh, season two, episode 13, The Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, mostly because we wanted a bit of levity because the uh, general assumption between both of us is that the next book and uh, bo- that episode, that second Jackson 31 episode will be really dark and we wanted something that was clearly silly. Yes. If you know anything about section 31... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a bad scene. So that'll be that. Um, stay tuned after the break, and we will come back and talk about Avatar Book 2. So our book this month is Avatar Book 2, the second book in this duology, which is uh, how it's referred to in Memory Beta, because nerds have to have names for everything. Um, It's just part two. Uh, By S.D. Perry, this book came out in 2001, just like the past one. It picks up right where the last one left off. Where are we in the world, Jackson? Tell us what's going on. So let me see if I can remember all the stuff that happened in Avatar Book 1. Okay, so DS9 is back uh, the status quo has changed a lot because at the end of DS9, lots of characters leave. Um, 
You need uh, to go uh, faster. You need uh, to go faster. Okay. Uh, anyway, new crew. Uh, but then everything gets blown up as a, three Dominion ships like start attacking the station. Then there's another Dominion ship and a, uh, a ship like a Federation ship is destroyed. Anyway, aftermath of that attack, um, there is a uh, um, Jem Jemhandar on the yes. station. Uh, in a cell who's like, I was sent here by Odo. You have to believe me. And everyone's like, oh, oh, we don't know about that. Um, and that's basically where DS9 is uh, in this like tense, un, uh, misunderstanding, uh, nah, not misunderstanding, what's the word? Like tense uh, confusion of this moment. Uh, there's lots of other plots going on. Jake Sisko believes, oh, right, the prophecy. Jake Sisko <laughs> um, uh, believes in... Uh, this prophecy that says he needs to go to the wormhole to like meet his dad. The Enterprise has uh, uh, this guy Elias Vaughn on the ship, and on an away mission, they have found an orb of Bajor and are bringing it to DS9 uh, while also coming in for repairs. And the uh, other plot, which is arguably the main plot, is uh, uh, a religious um, who was uh, Istani Rayla was her name, but like uh, Bajoran has been murdered. And no one knows why, and the Rolaren's investigation has led her to a book of prophecies which she has opened, and they're all true. And it says the 10,000 people are going to die. Before. Bef before um, Cisco's son can be born, or Cassidy's son. I guess, yeah, Cassidy's son. Cassidy's the person here. <laughs> we don't know it's a son, it's just a child, right? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. I actually oh, have no idea. Like, I assume that we'll eventually get that answer, but I don't know the answer. I'm sure we will. Man, because there's going to have to be a time skip to bring it up with post-Nemesis, so I hope that we get Cisco's uh, other kid at some yep. point. Yeah. Um, so you just summarized the first 40 pages of this book. Thank you, thanks for that. <laughs> As well, they yeah. go out of their way to tell you what happened in the book that you just read. <laughs> because this is clearly one book with, like... 30, 40 extra pages of edited in exposition to this first half of this book. Because uh, it's too it's too long. It's, it's weird. In the, if it was one book, it'd be way too long and a slog. But as two books, they're the most readable quick reads ever. Yeah. And we'll, eventually we'll get to the bigger Star Trek books. Like, we have a book uh, coming up uh, in our fourth episode that is a m very meaty tome in my memory. So... Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. We do. Yeah. We do yeah. have that. Um, but uh, so discounting all the things that you just said that happened in this book, because they go over everything again, the book actually opens with Odo sitting on the shores of the Great Link, pondering his life, trying to be the one who brings reason to all of the changelings, because they've already made up their minds that flesh beings are dumb. Uh, and he's there to tell them, no, you have to just give them a chance. Uh, I hope we get very little Odo in the future because I feel like that's a story that, like, much like what Cisco does in the in the wormhole, I don't want to know because telling me anything will spoil any of the majesty of it. Yeah, no, like you, I don't. The fact that this scene is Odo and another changeling like talking with words. To be fair, how it's like it's like one of the changelings that's in DS Nine. Oh, is it? Is that yeah? Um, yeah, it's Loss. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while since I've watched DS9. I don't have. Yeah, no, uh, he's, he's one of the other hundreds, hundred. He was like the only other one of the hundred that they meet, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Cause they sent. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like the, my imagining of the great link and what is going on there is so like, it's bigger than what you can have in like 
a Star Trek scene of two people arguing their philosophies back and forth, which is what this is, and it's fine as that, but and as just like it's just the prologue and the rest of the book never you never like Odo comes up, uh, but only in second hand. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I agree. I hope this is kept to a minimum. I don't want there to be like a restart of the Dominion. Like, by the end of this book, spoilers, the Dominion War, as like a, there's rumblings of it starting in the, the start of this this uh, Avatar book one, uh, like that conflict seems to have been put to bed and a status quo of what post-Dominion War DS9 looks like has been established. So I'm hoping we're past that. Yeah, because the the basic thing of this opening is because the books are still playing like, oh, did are the Jem'Hadar really here at the beckoning of the Dominion or they, did they actually go rogue because no one assumes that you know anything about how fiction works? Uh, <laughs> there's still like a Odo's trying to convince the Link not to like attack the humans, even though it's clear that like, like, like they don't necessarily agree with Odo, but the Changelings lost that war and they know that. Yeah. So, um, Back on the actual plot and station, we have the Jem'Hadar, who is uh, a continual mystery, and everyone like tries to bounce off him. Like Nog hates him because uh, Nog's been savaged by the Jem'Hadar in the course of the war. Uh, I forgot Nog just has a fake leg because he got that shit blown up or whatever. Yep, a whole two episodes about that. They're great episodes. I think it's weird. In it's not weird. It's a thing Star Trek does a lot, where like. All of all of the bigotry is offloaded to the aliens. Uh, yes, and I, I hate that, and I hope that like that's not like a defining feature of Nog in these novels going forward. No, because I doubt the Jem'Hadar are going to come up much. I mean, there's a. I mean, we'll get to it. Oh right, Jem'Hadar on the fucking station. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I forgot that part where the bigotry of Nog and the Jem'Hadar is like a massive cliffhanger for what how they're going to deal with. You, you're right. Fucking, you're right. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I agree. I, th- I think that's one of the best things about um, O'Brien is that he is the, oh, I fucking hate Cardassians guy. Yep, which is very 90s in the, oh, it's the working class guy who's the bigot. Um, oh, yeah, like I didn't say it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> um, just things that, like, I don't really, I, like, kind of bounce off me when I think about the show, but when you're reading a book, it's really hard not to dig into that stuff as you're reading it. Uh, mm-hmm. it it's always, like, the lens through which I view Star Trek as a book series will probably be so much harsher than how i feel about the show well because especially with this book um and maybe the style of writing will change for other ones but this book is all about multiple characters and in their interior monologues like it's in third person but everyone like the most of the book is a thing happens and then there's 200 pages of all right we have 20 different characters and they all have a different perspective on this why do they think this who are they in conflict with so it's like peak star trek but because it's a book and not a 43 minute episode of television the standards to like the the consistency and the levels of like what you have to do in order to make that palatable is so much higher yep so uh let's cover this all as we go let's talk about the prophecy first so yes uh, the Vedic who is there to like maybe kill whoever took the book and make sure it doesn't get out in anybody's hands. Mommy dickhead. Um, is there? Ro ha- like knows the book and Kira knows the book and basically like what are we gonna do? It's a crisis of faith for Kira specifically. Um, and she tells the- she just straight up tells the Vedic about it. But is it Ro who tells Cassidy at the same time? No, she tells Cassidy. Oh, she tells Cassidy. So they tell Cassidy about the thing just because they're like, Cassidy needs to know that, like, the Bajorans who are already really weird about her baby are clearly going to be really weird about your baby now. Um, uh, and the Vedic's like, oh, I can't believe you told her. We have to protect the, the, the like, whatever. I don't, they have a name for what Cassidy is, don't they? But I don't remember what it is now. 
Oh, they do. I don't fucking remember. Yeah, who cares? Whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and uh, they're like, uh, basically, uh, Kira gives him the book to take back to Bedros so it could be hidden forever. And Rose, like, how dare you? How could you, like, subsume the truth for this dumb, blind faith that's going to hold people back? Um, and her and Ro have a fight because that's what they do. And then it turns out that, like, the next day, oh, the whole text of the prophecy has been leaked everywhere. And the Vedic storms into Rose off and it's like, I'll have you removed. You'll never work anywhere in Bajor again now that you've done this, this blasphemy. And Kira's like, no, I did it. And Cassie's like, how dare you? Now these people know that they're all supposed to die for me. And I've had, like, literally, like, 15,000 calls of people who would willingly give their life to have my child born. And I'm pregnant. I have no time for any of this. I'm going back <laughs> <Yeah>. to Earth. <laughs> oh. Cassidy is the secret hero of this book, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, Cassidy Yates is maybe the secret hero of late DS9. That's true. Just the most put upon, I am in love with this man, uh, and I want to get married and like do everything, but also, I'm a human, and I don't give a fuck about this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a civilian. You can take all of your wormhole aliens and your Bajoran prophecies and go screw. Uh, my brother likes baseball, I run a space freighter, that's my job. Yeah, no, the, yeah, uh, man, late DS9 is great. Anyway, we can't, I can't uh, get distracted with that. Um, but yeah, that plot's interesting. Uh, I guess we're, go we're going up to like when the thing happens, right? The big yeah, event yeah. of this book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, yeah, so that's where that plot gets to. Um, the, the thing that I really like about that is so much of the first book is pitched as uh, Kira is like the devotee of the Bajoran faith and Ro is like oh I never care about any of that I wear my earring on the wrong side blah 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 <laughs> just to make people mad and she doesn't understand Kira and thinks her really pious but like when Ro lays out her arguments against giving the book to the Bajorans Kira takes like this middle road of no it's like a it's like it's still a treasure of the Bajoran faith like they should have this but I agree with you that the Bajoran people should be given the agency to make up their own mind so I'm going to leak this thing um and, like, Rose, like, shock that Kira is able to take that middle stance is really good in, like, Rose development as a person who doesn't have to be the outrageous, like, I'm gonna offend everyone provocateur that she has been cast in. Um, but also is, like, that is a, that is the most Kira Narice possible move. Yeah, the, the stuff with Kira in this book is fantastic because the first half um, of the book before, uh, we'll get to, like, what happens to... Uh, like kick the plot along in a bit but the first half is basically her going from scene to scene every scene entirely and completely changing her position on what her decision about this thing is and but not in impermanent ways like she's like now i have to tell casting like, oh no now i have to tell no one oh now i have to tell everyone oh oh shit like <laughs> as she tries to feel her way through uh what her faith is she like fucks up in all these huge ways but that aren't like i like that she is allowed to just be the most messy uh confused and like her crisis of faith has a bunch of real consequences but she's still able to come out the other side like yeah no i found this the solution and it was mine um well that's that's one of the things like even though like she's clearly not perfect in that like she never considered cassidy's feelings about the fallout of releasing that stuff and that's like a big a blunder like so much of what she does is what all of the Starfleet captains or cast is doing in that they gather input from all of their various, like, uh, like, um, lieutenants and whatnot. And everyone has a different viewpoint. Like, Worf's like, let's shoot it. And, uh, Deanna's like, let's understand it. And he, Picard sits there and synthesizes and comes up with an idea. And when he comes up with the idea, that's what's going to happen regardless of how people feel about it. And seeing Kira step into that role, like, really that's naturally true. is really good. Like, yeah, she listens really... to everyone and then she makes up her, her mind. And what she decides is not, 
what anyone told her, but it's synthesis of those ideas. And when she makes a decision, no one can dissuade her because she's in charge. It's her fucking station. And I yeah. love that that's what they do. That's that's what they commit to. I, I really buy the idea of, like, Kira as Cisco, Like, not as Cisco because they're so fucking different people. No, no. Um, but, like, in that role, I really hope that they don't try to do the Cisco's back and running the station thing. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, one of, one of our, my fears, and I've expressed it to you as we've gone through this, is I hope, like... I know at some point Cisco will show up because he doesn't exist in linear time, so of course he can just pop in whenever he wants, but I really do not want Cisco as like an ongoing major character in any of these books. Yeah, no, me neither. Like his arc was complete, and there's they have found so much more ground to cover in the characters that are alive and remaining there. Like I don't want I don't want O'Brien to come back. I don't want the old relationships to be um retrod uh you know unless... O'Brien can go have adventures in his own book somewhere else. Yeah, I'm sure he's doing that. He is doing that, right? He's got his core. Yeah, his engineering sure. core. Um, but yeah, so uh, what was I going to say? About... Oh, the 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 prophecy stuff. I, I one of the things I liked about the prophecy was that the end of the last book was so worrying in that it could have gone in the worst fucking way possible um, because prophecies. Uh, but <laughs> it ends up being entirely like about what happens when a concrete type prophecy is introduced to a universe that doesn't have them and can't even conceive of them as how it goes about its day-to-day business so it's like explicitly about how the fuck star trek happens when star wars walks in and and it approaches that entirely through like kira's crisis and uh cassidy's oh god why is there more bullshit and um all these different things yeah. And I really liked that paying off that way. Uh, so so to get to the actual fallout of this before we get to the stuff that like makes up the book or the actual like action in this book, uh, mm-hmm. w- what happens when Kira makes a decision and thinks about it some more? She takes Cassidy, Rowe, and the Vedic down to Bahala, which is the ruins where this book was found. And, uh, oh, worth pointing out, at some point the Enterprise shows up. With Vaughn and the orb. Well, no, because the thing we were no, 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 like this is this. Is, let me let me get this stuff because okay, I okay. want to get done with this set set of things. So that stuff happens, and it's important to this only in so much as uh, Picard presents the orb to Kira, and Kira gets an orb vision, and that's how she knows if they go to Bahala, they can find the answers of this prophecy. So they go to Bahala, and inside they find a giant chamber filled with bodies of everyone who has carried this like profane text for the thousands of years since it has been created, like the guardians of the book, and there are like nine thousand. 999 of them and there's one empty spot and that's for Isani Rayla who was the last guardian of the book before the prophecy was made real like as everyone learned about it um which is like a great way to sidestep all of our worries that we had last episode yep is also the most star trek ending possible for this uh prophecy resolution and uh is just great like i really like that whole scene um that scene was excellent um uh, and the fallout for Kira, though, unfortunately, is, like, the Vedic gets the book back and he talks with all the Vedics and basically excommunicates Kira from the Church of Bajor. So she's not allowed to, like, interface with the Vedics or do the orbs or, like, she's not even supposed to pray or anything. So she, like, the one of the last scenes of the book is her, like, sadly taking off her earring because she's not allowed to wear it anymore, having been removed from the faith. And, mm-hmm. uh... The Vedics are the most petty fucking assholes in the entire universe. I I, I fucking love them. They suck so much. Yep. And they've now that we are free of um, Kai Wynn and all the stuff with uh, the Par Wraiths and 
the, the like because the 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 Bajoran face stuff at a point in DS9 became so integral to the like the mythic storytelling of that show and now that that's gone it's just bullshit it's well, just like, DS9 the young pope one it's of the things cr- one of the things i really like about DS9 in this in the show uh and the thing that these books are carrying forward is that the faith is never considered like while the vedics are often assholes who do awful things to people the faith itself is never held really to task for that like Kira's faith is a defining part of her character and uh Rose's opposition to her faith because she doesn't believe in the things like she had such a rough childhood is like part of that faith also and that stuff's given like a lot of respect and a lot of credence and space to grow and breathe and the fact that the Vedics excommunicate her like doesn't like it doesn't actually end up speaking ill of the faith it just ends up speaking ill of the people who believe in it and Star Trek is totally happy to let those things just sit there and be a thing that are real without being like oh like this is still the atheist Star Trek who doesn't believe in any of that stuff and blah blah all these faith things are dumb and these people are small minded which is a thing that TNG does all the time and DS9 has been built upon like discounting if anything it's like a um it, it reads it, like in the book it reads as a uh incredible like what's advocacy for faith as an idea as like a thing that is personal and thought out and considered because it basically says all these vedics are just following these rules that they have like they're just being petty and this has to happen because you did this and this has to happen because this and uh jockeying for power and doing this and that um Whereas Kira is someone who has faith, like incorporates that into her actions, uh, and is able to like find a space for her beliefs that is uh, genuine and real, and then is punished for that by the like organized dogma of uh, Bajor. And I thought that was really cool. I, I, very good stuff. Yep. So. That all taken into account, let's talk about the other thing that happens in this book. I I just want to say that uh, during this scene, during the scene we were talking about, about where everything blows up, and she's like, I did it. Uh, the Another plot walks in halfway through in the most hilarious way, which I assume is the one we're going to do next, which is the Enterprise comes to TS9 and Roe and Picard lock eyes. So I was actually going to save that to the very end because it actually has very little to do with what happens in this book. Okay, all right, we'll just do the... Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we have Ezri and Bashir being at uh, like weird odds because Ezri is like learning to be a joint trill and Bashir is threatened by anybody who exerts any sort of confidence or dominance uh, because he's a big baby. And these two are like, they're clearly disgruntled. Like they're like, oh, we shouldn't like, we're just going to, she's like, I just need space. And he's clearly pouty about it up to the point where he goes into the uh, Jem'Hadar room to like give the Jem'Hadar his catch cell white. And the Jem'Hadar basically almost murders Bashir uh and breaks out and kills the guards and that is, and uh Ezri immediately rushes to his side and is like oh god he's almost dead i realize i love him and they're basically wrapped up immediately for this book which is great <laughs> because like there's they're no still way that, there's no way they're not doomed but the like reprieve of oh bashir almost died i still love him we're gonna make this work for now is like the most esri still being esri move that could happen yep. yeah no, it's the most like it's where this starts feeling like a pilot to a tv show like a new yeah. series because uh, yeah. it's laying the groundwork for the fact that these teenagers even though they're both uh, adults are fucking doomed children in yeah. their relationship uh but so just let's let simmer while crisis has happened um <laughs> uh, the scene where bashir gets murdered is fantastic because the book has up to the time been about 75 pages of straight 
maybe even more, like of straight just inner monologues and people thinking about this and, oh, what are we going to do about this? And what should I do about the faith? And what, sh-? like, nothing has happened. Absolutely nothing. And you think that this scene is going to be the continuation of the Ezri Bashir plotline, and he just dies. And they, like, this book does this a lot where it all writes towards an outcome that it will subvert later on. Um, it does this in a massive way later, but specifically does this here when he's like, he knows all he needs to do is reach for the uh, the, the pack and cauterize the wound and he can have a chance. And then the Jem'Hadar kicks the pack away and that is the last thing he ever saw. <laughs> yep. But then when Ezri runs in, he's already patched up, so maybe he clearly got to it. And this is about the time that the Enterprise and Vaughn had shown up and Vaughn's like, I'm going to go see the Jem'Hadar so I can figure this out and arrives only to find the bloody scene with Ezri. And that's where they're like, oh, Bashir's almost dead. Let's get him to the infirmary. Whereas Vaughn is like, I'm going to go. I have I have in my mind, my military secrets, big boss mind, the way to track the Jem'Hadar. So I'm going to go with these Bajoran security officers who are clearly meant to die uh, to go <laughs> and find the Jem'Hadar and so yep. they go and the Jem'Hadar is like going to the middle like the bottom of DS9 where like the fusion core is and is going to set it up to explode and for a while the book's like is this a prophecy because the ships that are here and all the people on the station equal 10,000 people uh, but it's Cassie ridiculous. Yates is there so you know that's not true uh, because well, she no, she, up also. She, she gets to like she's like one of the first people to evacuate but, like, she's not, like, evacuated in a way that would save them if the station blew up. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the whole thing is, like, oh, we could maybe get people out, but it's not going to be enough even if we, like, evacuate now. And they still try to evacuate now, but it's not going to be enough. There's no way. Oh, sh- oh, sure. But, like, with the way that prophecy is phrased, I could have seen if it was the bad version of the book. Like, mm-hmm. it being, like, we everyone move. We have to get Cassidy to the surface. And Cassidy being, like, fuck off. I hate this. So <laughs> so as the as the Jem'Hadar is, like, in the fusion core about to blow up, Vaughn and Kira and the security guards are there. And Vaughn has this tactical plan of we're going to split up. We're going to distract him. And we're going to do this. <laughs> and we're going to faint off and blah, 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 whatever. And it immediately goes horribly wrong because the Jem'Hadar is better than both of them. Uh, yeah basically and uh and then the deus ex machina shows up as another gem hadar decloaks and this guy is like the biggest baddest gem hadar he's like 22 years old or something and gem like the, the like je, like the thing with gem hadar is they get better at all the things they do as they age um and like the oldest one you ever met in DS9, which was like the ones who re- had like weaned themselves off of Ketra Cell White and were like the rebellion Jem'Hadar were like 10 years old. And this guy's 22 or something. Yeah. Uh, so he's like the oldest Jem'Hadar on Earth. And he like wrecks this, uh, he, the Jem'Hadar is trying to blow up the station shit. And he rescues Vaughn and Kira. Or he rescues Kira because Kira has been concussed. And hit him and Vaughn carry her to the uh, bridge where she puts in the code to make sure that the core has been jettisoned and it blows up harmlessly in space. And they're fine. Except for the part where DS9 has no power. But whatever. They'll fix that in between books. Uh, <laughs> um, and this Jem'Hadar says his name is Tyranitar, like the Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never I not think of that when I hear I, him. I didn't even, because I, you know, I don't know enough about Pokemon, but yep. good, good. Uh, there's a Pokemon called Tyranitar, but this guy's name is Tyran, 
T-A-R-A-N apostrophe A-T-A-R, Tyranitar. Uh, and he is actually the guy who Odo sent to be like their envoy and tell them all the things that, hey, oh. the, the Link didn't do this. And the chip that like, they were like, oh, we can't trust this Jem'Hadar. He doesn't have a message from Odo. That's weird. And that, like the guy who they had captured was like, oh, it was lost in the explosion. This guy actually has the chip. So he has a message from Odo and the other guy assumed his identity. And they basically swap one head Jem'Hadar for the other because this book needed to go on a little longer. <laughs> yep. It's profoundly ridiculous in that this only exists in order to give the book some kind of climax yep uh because the, you could totally rewrite this book cut out 50 pages of this of like these action scenes and have the gem who showed up just be the the one uh yeah but then like nothing literally nothing would have happened in this book if that yeah, was the case it literally it would have just been people talking about what to do and then calmly solving it which i guess is very star trek but yeah. the, the book is too big scale for that to like really work um and it is a hilarious twist because then like uh kira walks like kira knows the station is saved yeah. and doesn't know the gem hadar's there and is going through possibilities in her head as she walks to this meeting oh, yeah. like, oh. so in in the intervening action scene the rest of the fleet like the klingon romulan uh federation task force that's going to barge in through the wormhole and take the fight back to the Dominion if need be shows up and so they have a big meeting where everyone sits down and talks about their stances just like Star Trek yes, should be. Star Trek! Yes! <laughs> and Kira walks into that meeting to get debriefed and there's a Jem'Hadar who's like the new big tough Jem'Hadar and he's got a message from Odo. He's like the oldest Jem'Hadar. He doesn't need Ketrasol White because he's one of those that's been like, it's been weaned out of him or whatever. And the message from Odo is basically like the most here is my statement to the Federation, but also, hey, uh, Kira, uh, oh, Federation, don't look at this. Hey, Kira, what's up? I love you. <laughs> there, uh, one of the best bits of this book is when she was like, oh, it's so subtle. It's clearly speaking to me. No one here will, no one here knows. And then Vaughn's and then- like, everyone's embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's embarrassed. These two children have. <laughs> Uh, overtaken diplomatic proceedings in order to write a love letter. <laughs> it was like, oh, we, we all felt we shouldn't watch. It was very personal. <laughs> and Kiru just doesn't see it. Oh, uh, it's great. Because suddenly, like, as the book wraps up and as it gets over the, the, oh, is everyone going to die moment, which clearly not, um, <laughs> it just realizes the ludicrousness of the situation <laughs> and revels in it and that he's like okay so i am the real jemhadar and then they're like okay well why didn't you fucking decloak immediately he's like, well actually there were multiple jemhadar and they all and tried been, to do the thing yeah, he did he's been spending he's been spending the last like four days killing all the other jemhadar that are cloaked on the station <laughs> Yeah, he's like, well, they all tried to come towards the fusion reactor to blow you up when you didn't even know they were there, and then I had to kill them each time. <laughs> it was, oh, but, it was uh, ridiculous. Yeah. But Odo's message basically confirms everything we've been saying and knew in our hearts because it's Star Trek. The Link is going to leave them alone if they want to come into the quadrant. They're welcome to. There's no those Jem'Hadar were rogue agents. There's no. Like, we're going to keep a tired leech on them. There's no possibility of a threat from us. The Dominion, for now, is quiet. Please be on your way. And take this Jem'Hadar. He's kind of weird. He's open to new experiences with Jem'Hadar, not supposed to be. And I think he'd be a good fit. He reminds me a lot of myself. Kira, please look after my son. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. No, yeah. So, so now they have a Jem'Hadar on the crew. Yeah, which is uh, cool. I do hope that... Uh, 
Nog gets over that very quickly because the 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 Jem'Hadar like escaping, killing, almost killing Bashir, killing a bunch of people, and almost destroying the station is like cementing Nog's. Uh, no, I was right to be racist. Thing. Yeah. And then so so he has the most hilarious character development in that he gets to the point where he can trust the Jem'Hadar that's immediately taken away. And then the next like chapter that is immediately reversed again is there's a secret good Jem'Hadar. And he's yep. like, I'm just a Ferengi boy. <laughs> um, one of the best parts of the scene is after everyone hears the message, uh, you clearly know that this conflict is over. The task force has nothing to do. But Vaughn has this moment where Vaughn's like, OK, gentlemen, Klingons, Romulans, why don't you go back to your ships and think about this do your research and decide what we're going to do knowing full well that if the klingons and romulans both think it's their idea they'll be fine disbanding the task force but not if the federation tells them to do it Mm -hmm. uh which is one of those vaughn is secretly a great character and is full of great comedy moments like that because he's old (laughs) as fuck and doesn't give a shit oh it's so good Uh, and then there's like three chapters of what's vaughn gonna do now well there is there is like the fucking like Evangelion scene where he calls his like mysterious superiors who are just like blank faces on the Federation Security Council and he's like they're like you can't do this you've known too many secrets he's like but if you don't let me do this I'll reveal your too many secrets and they're like touche Vaughn (laughs) he's like you can't do this you're a Federation officer you follow orders and he's like well then I will resign and I will follow my own orders he's like they're like you know too many secrets we can't let you resign I guess we're gonna have to let you do the thing you want to do in the first place and he's like I know I'm the best. <laughs> Vaughn out. He is a very silly... Like, I'm glad that they made a character who uh, is going to be in more of these books and their main function is to just be the most knowing-what-they-are bullshit uh, Federation like admiral type. Because uh, So what happens is... After, like, five scenes of you going, like, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? What is he here to do? It's, he's here to take, uh, the first officer position, um, uh, Takira. Yeah. Uh, which is very cool, because, like, we don't, like, characters in the Federation, they go, they, they are eventually promoted, or they want to be a captain forever. Uh, but the idea of someone who is so old and so, like, past it in terms of dealing with the Federation's bullshit, uh, but is like taking commands from Kira and in this kind of backseat position is very cool. And I'm waiting to see what they do with it. I know what they do with it in one way, but you know, one of the, one of the things I really like about it is that he basically represents like a, like a modern Star Trek take on Captain Kirk. Cause the whole thing with Kirk in the movies is that Kirk was promoted to admirable admiral in movie one and spends six movies making up more elaborate excuses to get in control of a starship because that's all he ever wanted to do and was good at. Yeah. Uh, and Vaughn is like, oh, I've been the secret war shadow agent for like 30 years and I'm like 110. But what I really want to do now that I've had my religious experience is hang out with these Bajorans and explore the galaxy again. Uh, and he does. And it's great. Like he he becomes like the cowboy diplomat. He knows too much about everything weird. But he's like, I'm just going to be the first officer of this thing. I'm going to have a non-Federation person in front of me who's like a woman. It's like a nice inversion of like the Kirk. Like it's all the Kirk things without the Kirk grossness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really appreciate it. I think Vaughn is a great character. I'm so excited that he's like part of this main cast. Yeah, me too. Like the the status quo of what DS9 is at the end of the book is really cool because yeah. the the conflict of the book 
uh, is all holdover stuff, and it's all really like, oh, gotta be doing this. Uh, but it turns out it's actually all chess piece moving in order to get the Dominion to a point where they're like, rather than them, or are they a threat? No, they are completely not a threat, and we can explore the Gamma Quadrant and we can do Star Trek shit. Uh, and also, there's a Jemadar on the station, and also there's this old guy on the station. So there are four plot points that we did not cover in talking about this stuff because they're kind of detached and just set up. Um, first off, Quark is in love. Yes, he is. He is most definitely smitten with Rolaren and finds excuses to hang out and learn what she likes. And Ro seems very charmed by this, but like not interested, but is willing to play along. And that stuff is really great. That's happening still. Her opinion of Quark is like, he's an idiot, but man, he's a good idiot. Quark's yeah, she's fine. like, she's like, I'm glad that someone here is not like put off by me and might even like me. I'm glad, like, even if it is this ridiculous Ferengi, it's something. I'll take it. Yeah, like, instead of, like, she doesn't want to go out with him, but she <laughs> appreciates... Like she appreciates the regard, yeah. She appreciates the regard, but also she appreciates the fact that Quark is just crazy. Just yeah. completely doesn't give a fuck in his own way. Uh is setting out to, like, mess with people. Like, she can see completely through everything he's doing and just finds it hilarious and kind of endearing. It's yep. great. Um, and then we have Char, the Andorian crewmate. Oh, right. Uh, and it is revealed, like, Char doesn't have a ton to do. Like, he's just kind of helping out when needed to be helped, like, helping out. But it's revealed in the course of this that Char, Char's mother... Or Char's, one of Char's parents, because Andorian genders are complicated and never fully explained, is, like, on the Federation ruling. Like, she's, like, the representative from Andoria and is, like, a big wig in the Federation. And Char had never wanted anyone to know that stuff because uh, he didn't want people to treat him differently because he just wants to work his way up naturally and also his mother might want him to come back and make kids or something it's not really clear but there's like family tension that is like talked around and it the way this is resolved is one of the most hilarious lines in the book which uh because he gets into tension with nog who is his like his friend as a kind of more lower level uh character and he's like, oh, I thought you'd see me differently. And then he, Nog just goes, oh, yeah, my father's the Grand Nagus now. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, because everyone in Star Trek had something crazy happen to them. Yeah, it's like, right, this is what happens to main characters in Star Trek. It was very funny. So talk to me about Rowan Picard. Rowan Picard is great because it's the moment that the book like you know is coming from the like the second row shows up and then the enterprise shows up uh but it has nothing to do with the plot per se and it's all about um the tension that is held over from when she was like uh actually fuck you and betrayed them uh back in season seven of tng i forget the specifics of that i know she like left the maquis but I, I can't remember how, like, did she put the Enterprise in harm's way to do so? I, I, I don't remember. Uh, she was ordered explicitly to help bring in this Maquis cell and ended up joining with them in defiance okay. of her orders. And Picard was very disappointed in her. Um, but it wasn't but like, like she attacked the, the cell, attacked the Enterprise. It was like, I'm no, just no, no, switching but, like, sides. She was given really explicit orders and Starfleet was like, you can't trust her. She's like half already joining them anyway. And Picard's like, no, I have the utmost faith that Rolaren will fulfill her duty. And like Picard vouched for her. And that's why it was especially bitter for him. Okay. So it's just Picard getting over himself. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, and it, it's uh, been it's been many years, so right, like it's been many years. But there's still a moment where he's like, "Oh, this is fucking oh, goddamn!" Like he's kind of shaken. Uh, like Rose worried about it too, because um, she just didn't think she'd see Picard again. Uh, and obviously the book ends with a, like an acknowledgement. Like what? I can't remember how it happens, but he doesn't. He doesn't talk to her. No, no, uh, he totally walks in. He like oh, he does. comes he into her office and. Uh, he's like, wow, it's like, it's impressive the life you found for yourself. And she apologized and he's like, no, no, like the world, like the things that happened happened, but like you had to make your own path. And I respect that this is where you've ended up and like, you're doing all right, you know? And Picard doesn't really have any sort of ill will. Like he literally says, like, I don't think poorly of you for the things you did. Like, I don't agree with them, but that's not, that's never been the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He comes in and he's like disappointed dad and she's so worried the whole book. Like, she's concerned about so much greater things and then the second Picard walks in all she wants to do is like make sure Picard isn't mad at her. Yeah, which, <laughs> which I mean to same, be fair. Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then like the, the resolution is just Picard going yeah like it happens I guess. Uh, you're doing fine. Because she's not back with the Federation but she's like DS9 exists in the space where um like the job she has is one Picard recognizes as good. It's not like she's with a McKee cell anymore. Yeah. Um, and like that, like he sees, oh, she's gone through this and ended up here, and that's fine. Like I've made mistakes too. There is no reason to be angry at her, and it's great because the resolution isn't like nothing happens to cause it. They just realize this is stupid and stop. Yep. Uh, so I lied. There are actually two more points, not one. Uh, one briefly. As they're having, like, the ceremony where Vaughn is like, oh, you're going to be on the ship now. There is an ensign called uh, Prin Tenme. I had to look this up. And who she, she's... Well, yeah, you were going to say? Oh, you were going to say the same thing, actually. Like, oh, she, she is, is freaked out that Vaughn is there. She's like, yeah. oh, God, it's Vaughn. I, I can't believe he's here. I never thought I'd see him again. And it's totally unaddressed. So that, and she runs out books. and she's mad. Yep. And, but the, so I search Prin into the... the uh, like Kindle search and nothing for this book, but then she's like mentioned in the other book. She is there and ha- like exists in book one and talks to people, but I, I'm fairly sure this wasn't hinted at in any way. Yep, that's just a thing that happens. Yeah, no, no, no. Like that's clearly just set up. And then finally, the last scene of the book: Jake Cisco has been in the wormhole for the entirety of the events of this book. <laughs> And is bored and feels very foolish. He's like, there's nothing here. It's just a wormhole. And as he's like, I guess I'm just going to go home and lick my wounds and not get over myself. Oh, it's so good. Because he's like, oh, I need to go back. They're all waiting for me. They're, they're just, they're probably just like cleaning up after that party. <laughs> you know, like, he's absolutely like, he's like no. I've been here for three days and all I've got is a pain in my neck because this shuttle is small. And yep. Uh, as he goes to leave, some mysterious thing happens in the wormhole and it hits his ship and he is tossed about and is like cast in the wormhole as like the ship's about to disintegrate, which is basically what happened to Cisco in the first episode of DS9. So I assume that finally we are going to get some Jake Cisco, but probably not for two books. Yeah, least. no, like I, I assume the second 31 one would just be like, Jake's gone to Earth. Yeah. Like, Cause no everyone, one... everyone thinks he's at Earth, so no one's going to be looking for him. Yep. And then and if, I, and if it is the aliens, he's out of linear time as long as he's interacting with them. So he could show up whenever. Oh, fucking you're right. <laughs> yeah. Jake Sisko comes back and is just um, like 30 years old. Yep. No, Jake Sisko comes back and he's like the Jake Sisko from that episode where he's an old man trying to find. Oh, 
You mean the like the most devastating episode of Star Trek to ever? Yeah, yeah, no, you mean the one that made me like sob for like an hour when I watched it. Yeah, like for a whole week. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good episode of television. <laughs> so that's all what happened in Avatar Book Two. We have it. We have a good setup. We got all these people on the ship and everything. Oh, one thing that's worth mentioning. Uh, not really like a plot point. Or I guess it is the defi- definition of a plot point. But uh, Elias knew a version of Dax. I assume Curzon. Uh, I'm going to assume Curzon as well. It's usually yeah. Curzon. Yeah. Uh, but when uh, Dax sees Elias, it's like, oh, Elias. And Elias is very happy to see Dax. So. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that there's still some uh, like links to Dax's uh, old hosts. Yep. For sure. And uh, that's the book. Uh, it was overall really enjoyable. It addressed all of my concerns with the last one. I feel like all of the action, and I'm going to feel this about these books all the time, action in books is boring and I hate it. I wish they just write things that aren't yep. action. Yep. It's so bad. Because this book goes on for so long when nothing happens and it's all really readable. And then you get to like 20 pages of, and then we stood behind uh, the corner and the, the gem had ass took its gun out and I hit him, but he hit me first and then I was on the floor. Like, <laughs> And like, we're both people who have written fiction before. Writing yep. action scenes is incredibly hard. You know why? Because written action scenes are boring as fuck. <laughs> it, it is impossible to do a good one. I mean, I assume there are some good ones in fiction, but man. Like, I've read some that are good, but they're only good because they're very brief and they're in the context of a story that supports them yeah like they're readable but you can't have a written action scene that is entertaining in its like actual flow in the way that an action scene you watch is yep the best thing you can do is make it so people understand what's going on without over explaining yourself and yep. while i understood what was going on in this book it definitely over explained itself yeah no the, the books definitely have a we need to pad this out like there's clearly a discussion had as to whether this is going to be one or two books yep uh and when the choice was made a lot got added um, but yeah, it's a good time. Good time, Star Trek. Check it out. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to continue this DS9. Uh, <laughs> it's relaunch. all I can do not to just load up the Section 311 right now. <laughs> uh, I don't have my copy yet, so I couldn't do that anyway. Um, yep. But so what we're reading next is uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Section 31 Abyss, which is dun, dun, dun. part of it is the next book in this series. It is the fourth Section 31 novel, but apparently those books are all self-contained. Like one of them is like uh, Picard dealing with Section 31, and one of them is like the original series cast dealing with Section 31. So they're, they're just like uh, just Section 31 as they interface with various uh, Trek uh, milieus. What um, even is Picard like in the same universe as Section 31? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm very, I'm very. Int- I mean, who do you think trained him to do the thing where him and everyone wore the black suits and infiltrated Cardassia? Right. That's true. I guess that, that one time that Picard is like black ops sneaking suit. Yeah. Him and Beverly are like doing like commando roles in like caves. It's very silly. Because <laughs> Wolf, right? The Wolf's there, and obviously Wolf can do that. But then it's just Picard and Beverly can just like, hey, we've got our suits on. We're doing the mission. Yeah. Uh, this, book, uh, this book uh, is written by David Weddle and Jeffrey Lang, which means we're going to be away from KD per- or SD Perry. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Hang I'm on, sorry. did you just say someone yeah. Lang and then go KD? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Good. I uh, I am very excited about all that. <laughs> Me too. So, um, what happens to Bashir? I I assume this is going to have like Bashir Ezri nonsense. Uh, I would assume so, but I don't actually know. But yeah, this will be our next book. At the end of my paper book, there was just a picture of this cover, which is the most like oh, serious it's such a bad cover. 
post 9-11 Bashir face that you could ever conjure for a book. Um, it's like Julian Bashir is 24. Uh, <laughs> yep. Keith uh, Sutherland has been cast as Julian Bashir now. Yep. No, sure. So I'm very excited for that. That's what we're reading next month. Uh, you already know the episodes. That's why we're doing the Section 31 introduction episode. Um from season six of ds9 and uh look forward to that we don't have an email yet we're not taking questions because these are recorded well in advance at some point we're gonna have to stop recording these in advance and just let our backlog run out so we can start doing that but i assume that in, uh would assume people listen to it which we don't know yet because the podcast isn't out yep i mean you can always hit us up on twitter to yep. yell at us about star trek so jackson where can people find you, you can find me at headfuls off on twitter and, and you also... can find oh, oh you okay. No, okay. Uh, you can find me at em underscore being. You can find both of us on Abnormal Mapping, a uh, monthly video game podcast. Uh, that is at abnormalmapping.com. Yes. For now. I, that might be different by the time. No, that's explicitly. <laughs> go... I was waiting for you to do the thing where you actually introduced the thing that has happened because all of these web episodes are going up at abnormalmapping.com slash SOS. Yeah, that's the true. The Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. I, yep, can't, uh, I can't believe you forgot this whole time. Yeah, whatever. It, like, we don't have it all set up yet, so who knows if it's going to be real. You, The other podcast that you recorded the other week, you said that as a concrete I know, thing. But now now that we're talking about it and, like, the things are happening, I get cold feet sometimes. Just let okay. me have this. All right, that's ha- fine. I don't have to be on the ball all the time. I've been hosting this podcast for an hour and a half. I'm tired. Yeah, that's fair. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, Enjoy your Star Trek. Watch uh, some episodes. Read some books. And we'll be back next time. Yeah. Disengage. Disengage.